As the deer pants for the water. You're probably familiar with that phrase. It's one of the most well-known phrases in the book of Psalms, and if I'm not mistaken, also the title of a, a worship song that was written in like the mid-1980s, right? As the deer pants for the water. And when we think about that image, we love that picture that we conjure up in our minds, the idea that, that you and I would have a relationship with the living God, that we would desire to have a relationship with Him in the same way that a deer goes looking for a stream to quench its thirst so that it can live. That is a beautiful, beautiful picture. But it's interesting, while, while we love that image and we love the sort of the peacefulness that comes over us as we think about it, that statement does not come out of a psalm that is very peaceful at all. In fact, it comes out of a psalm that is about suffering and despair. And that thirst that is being described is present because of the pain that we all experience in this fallen world. That's why it's there. That's why the psalmist thirsts for God. Life is not the way it should be. We all feel it every day, right? Things are broken. Wickedness abounds. Relationships are strained. And death is a daily reality. And the good news is Scripture is not shy about talking about that. Scripture is brutally honest about all those things. Throughout the Bible, we see all kinds of examples of broken lives. But we also see an outlet for the emotions that go with our suffering. And I'm so grateful for that. We call it a lament. And it's one of the major categories that we see in the book of Psalms. What is a lament? It's the honest vocalization of our sorrow, our sadness, our grief before the living God. And I'm glad that we have that privilege to, to speak to God in that way. I recently read another description of a lament from an author, and I loved this picture. He said, a lament is an underground tunnel to hope. Think about that. It's a beautiful way of picturing it. Now, a lot of us are not comfortable with lament. We don't like to talk about it much in the Western world. In fact, we do everything we can to avoid talking about our pain and our suffering in front of other people. That's even true among Christians, though it shouldn't be. We would prefer to come to church and smile and wave and say everything's just fine and push through the pain in our life in the strength of our own fortitude. And that works to some extent, to the extent that, that we can acceptably function in life. We, we push through in our own strength. But then there come times in our lives, and if you haven't felt it yet, you will, when we're simply overwhelmed by the circumstances of life and we can't find a way to pull ourselves out of it. In those moments, we need answers, and we need a way forward, and that's where lament becomes a tool for us. It is a language that helps us express all of the hurts and the loss and the despair. It's an answer for when we perceive nothing but silence coming from heaven. It's our category for lifting up hard questions before God. It's a framework for managing our feelings and to the surprise of some, it's also a portal into a deeper God-centered worship. And so lament is very, very valuable in that sense. If you ask Christians in other parts of the world, in Africa, in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, they understand lamenting because they have to deal with it every day, that type of suffering. But here in America, we struggle with this. And let me just say this. This is an actual area of spiritual weakness for us that we don't do this well. So this is something that all of us would do well to shore up in our lives. So grab your Bibles. We're going to look at this in Psalm 42. And we're also going to look at Psalm 43. Now, last Sunday, we looked at, uh, we finished the, the first collection. There are five collections of Psalms within the book of Psalms. And last week, we sort of wrapped up that first collection. And you can see the breakdown on the screen. And today, so we're entering into the first two psalms in collection number two. And there are some significant differences between those first 41 psalms, the first collection, and what we're about to enter into this morning. In the first collection, 37 of the 41 songs are attributed to David. And the other four are left sort of anonymous. So David is the only known psalmist in that first collection. In the second collection, David is the author of 18 of those 30 songs, so more than half, but we're also introduced to some new names, some new authors, Solomon and Asaph, each 
penned one of the Psalms, and seven of the Psalms belong to uh, a group of men known as the Sons of Korah, and then three others are anonymous. But the biggest difference between Collection 1 and Collection 2 is the use of the Hebrew name for God. And we'll discover why this is as we go along. In the first collection, the covenant name of Yahweh, or Lord in capital letters in your English Bibles, is used 272 times. And the name Elohim, which speaks of God as creator and supreme ruler, is found only 15 times. When we get to the second collection, those, those words are reversed. Get this now. Elohim occurs 164 times and Yahweh only 30 times. And so we'll see why that is as we go along. Now, you can see in your Bibles, you probably have a superscription, right? For Psalm 42, it says, For the choir director, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Now, this is the second time we've seen this maskil come up. And you might recall, we were in Psalm 32 many weeks ago, and the Hebrew root of that word means to make someone wise or to instruct. And so when we apply that to the Psalms, it means that we're about to study a song that instructs us. It is a song that is perfectly crafted in order to communicate wisdom. And that is particularly important for the text that we're going to look at today. The words of the psalmist in today's text are very insightful, they are very wise, and they're also very practical. We're going to see that as we go along. They are intense words. They are very intense words. So look, we're going to read some things here today that might trigger you just a bit, okay? Intense words that are designed to shape how we think and how we feel about the trials of life. So who are the sons of Korah? Well, we know them from 1 Chronicles chapter 6 where we're given this detailed genealogy of all the priestly lines of Israel. And we learned that Korah was, of course, from the tribe of Levi, and therefore he was designated as a priest. But most importantly, he is the grandson of a man named Kohath. And the Kohathites were a very important tribe of priests during the days that the Israel was wandering through the wilderness under the leadership of Moses for 40 years. In fact, when the Israelite uh, camp was made around the tabernacle, I'm going to give you a picture of this, there were four families that camped closest to the tabernacle. And you may or may not know this, but it's shown very clearly in the book of Numbers. So you have in front of the tabernacle, you had the descendants of Aaron, including Moses. They were at the front entrance of the tabernacle. The other three names you see there are the three sons of Levi. Okay, so the original Levites. And so in the back, you had the Gershonites. That's where they were positioned. To the right were those from the line of Levi's second son, Merari. And to the left were the priests from the line of Kohath, including Korah and later his sons. And we're told in 1 Chronicles 6, it says this, These are the men David put in charge of the music in the Lord's temple, after the ark came to rest there. They ministered with song in front of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, until Solomon built the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. So the tabernacle moves through the wilderness, and this was the setup of the camp. And then all the 12 tribes of Israel, of course, had their particular position around the central worship spot, which was the tabernacle. So the Kohathites were worship leaders in Israel. They were in charge of the sanctuary and the holy vessels within it and ministering in song. And that included the authors of the two Psalms we're looking at today, the sons of Korah. By the way, we are given their names in Exodus 6. Their names are Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaf. So those are our authors for today. Now, many Hebrew scholars will tell you that these two Psalms, 42 and 43, were probably originally meant to be read together. In fact, some of the most ancient manuscripts we have in Hebrew actually fuse them together into a single psalm. And the reason for that is going to become obvious. Number one, there's all kinds of similar themes between the two. But secondly, and more importantly, they both contain a single key verse stated in the exact same way that's repeated three times. So we'll see that as we go along. So let's, let's, I'll take that picture off the screen because it's super distracting, right? Uh, let's read the two Psalms back to back. So let's go to Psalm 42, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My 
Tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with, will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Now look at Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Okay, so what are we looking at here? Woven throughout these two psalms are a number of symptoms which describe what we might call in today's modern vernacular, depression. Depression. For example, go back to the first psalm and look at verse 5. Again, we read this how many times? Three times. Why are you in despair, my soul? Some translations say, why are you cast down? And then the verse goes on, why have you become disturbed within me? And the meaning of despair in the Hebrew is literally to be brought low. And the meaning in the Hebrew of this word disturbed is literally, listen, to growl or to murmur. And so you combine that together, you get these two words that paint a very troubling picture of a person that has been just devastated, wrecked, laid low by the circumstances of life to the point where he is growling and murmuring in pain and in turmoil. And the same idea is repeated in the next verse, verse 6. Oh my God, that's, that's Elohim, by the way, when you see God like that. My soul is in despair within me. Now, why do we, when we use the word despair in English, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? We talk about someone who is in a depressed state of mind, who is in the process of losing hope. They are despairing. So it's a picture of desperation. The psalmist is in a desperate place. And then verse 5 gets repeated again in verse 11 for emphasis, right? Whenever we see repetition like that, we know that God is emphasizing something. But then that's not all. We see it a third time in the next psalm, in Psalm 43, verse 5. So you get a sense that this is the central theme of these two psalms because of this repetition, the idea that the psalmist is in despair. Now, maybe you've thought, in the past, or maybe even taught in the past, hey, godly people don't despair. Or you've been taught Christians don't get depressed, right? And it's really impossible to judge whether that statement, Christians don't get depressed, is true, because when we talk about this thing called depression, we all have a different idea of what that means, right? It can mean all kinds of different things to different people. Listen, it's not my goal this morning to get wrapped up in parsing all the, the various positions, you know, based on modern day diagnoses of, of what depression is. Let's simply agree on this as we go through the text. It's not only possible, but it is inevitable that true worshipers of God, including Christians today, at times in their life will experience very real feelings of grief and sadness and sorrow 
and yes, even despair. It's inevitable. Whether you want to call that depression or not, not getting into that, that would be a great podcast, Adam, to talk about the more formal definition of depression. But clearly, this is where the psalmist is, and we're all subject to these, these feelings that we experience in this fallen world. Sadness, grief, sorrow, and despair. And if you doubt me on that, don't read 2 Corinthians 1.8, where Paul says, right? What does he say? For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired of life itself. Paul and Timothy were in despair as they ministered on behalf of Jesus in Asia Minor because they were afflicted and oppressed. And there's so many other examples in Scripture of depressive symptoms. Think about all the way back to, to Cain, right? Remember Cain brings an offering to the Lord and it says the Lord didn't regard his offering. And what happened? Cain got angry and it says his countenance fell. And so it starts early on. We could talk about the extreme lament of Job, right? And all of his sufferings. Don't tell me Job's not down in the pits. Well, how about the up and down emotions and the mood swings of Jonah? Guy's all over the place, isn't he? All kinds of feelings about God, about, about God's enemies, all kinds of things. How about we could point to the weariness of Moses as he endured so much oppression in the wilderness. Remember how he complained to Yahweh about the burden of having to care for all these people to the point where he said, hey, Lord, just go ahead and take my life. Sounds pretty depressive. We could talk about the example of self-pity that Elijah went through after Jezebel threatened his life and he, he ran for his life and then he, he, he calls out to God and he says, I'm the only one left. Falsely, of course. And again, he says, go ahead and take my life. Then we have Jeremiah, who's literally known as the weeping prophet because of all the suffering that he endured in loneliness and oppression. He was the prophet of the exile and he was treated terribly. And I probably don't have to remind you that in Isaiah 53, it was prophesied that Israel's Messiah would be a man of what? Sorrows acquainted with what? With grief. So before we go any further, let's just agree that we could quibble about definitions. Is depression a form of illness? Is it a form of mental illness? Is it just a state of emotional turmoil? But for today, in the time that we have, let's simply agree that the psalmist here in, in, in 42 and 43 was indeed living with depressive symptoms. He was living with grief and with sorrow and with sadness, and he was in a desperate place. And listen, I can stand up here and testify. I have experienced this in my life as a believer. I have experienced these types of things. I can testify. There have been times when I've been so discouraged in ministry with the heaviness of it. There have been times when I've been so deeply wounded by people, even in the church, that I, I physically hurt. There's a physical heaviness and hurt in, in various times in my 22 years of ministry that came upon me. And there are times when I, I, was, I was so down that I couldn't focus on anything, that I, I felt no motivation to get up and get things done. You can talk to my wife. I'm struggling to sleep. There's all kinds of physical symptoms with this. Now, would you call that a clinical depression? I don't know. I never actually even thought to go, I need to find a clinical definition for this. I just know it was really, really difficult. And I felt sadness, and I felt grief, and I felt sorrow. But I can also testify to this. There's a way out of that. And that's what we definitely need to talk about. And we'll get to that in just a moment. By the way, it's important to say that being sad and being sorrowful to the point of despairing is not inherently wrong or sinful, where it can become sinful is what we do with it, what we do next, how we respond to it, right? Do we allow our feelings, our depressive feelings, to drag us into disobedience? Do we allow those feelings to cause us to start believing the lies of the world, to drag us into unbelief? That's where we fall into sin. So it's not feeling those symptoms, it's what we do next. Does that make sense? That's what we need to resist. For the psalmist here, you see that his situation has made him depressive in every way possible, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. His soul is thirsty. He is emotionally drained. It says he's crying day and night. He's struggling with loss. 
right? He's, he's remembering these joyful times of worship and celebration, and now those things are gone. That, is a, that can be a heavy thing when we look in the past and go, it was so good, and I've lost that. It's now gone. He's feeling overwhelmed. He uses language that talks about, I feel like I'm drowning. The, you know how you've ever, have you ever gotten caught underwater at the beach and the waves just won't stop coming and you can't get a breath? That's what he feels like. Waves of trouble are, are just sweeping over him. He talks about being attacked and taunted by his enemies to the point where he feels like his bones are being shattered. And they're saying, where's your God? They're challenging him. Your God has abandoned you. And he feels like his bones are being shattered. And then there's the worst symptom of all. He's feeling, it's not true, but he's feeling in this moment abandoned by God. And that creates confusion and sorrow in his life. And so, yeah, most counselors would look at that and go, that's somebody who is deeply depressed. Those are real symptoms. The psalmist is in trouble within, and it is now outside affecting every part of his life. He's feeling buried under the weight of all of this stuff. And if you read the progression in the text, you actually see his agony, his agony escalating as he goes along. If you look at verse 2 in, in the first psalm, he starts by saying, look, my soul thirsts for God. But then look at the question he asks in verse 2. When shall I come and appear before him? In other words, he's like, right now, I can't seem to get to God. But then by verse 9, he's saying, I feel like God has forgotten me. And then in the next psalm, in verse, thir- in verse 2 of Psalm 43, he gets to a very drastic place where he says, I feel like God has rejected me. That is an escalation of desperation. And all along the way, you see over and over again in the text, why, 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 why? What is going on? And this is the actual truth behind that phrase that we love. As the deer pants for the water, so my, so my soul pants for you, Elohim. In a state of crisis, that's what his soul needs more than anything else, to simply bask in the presence of God and to get a sense, a feeling of his, of his grace and his love. And the psalmist is desperate for it. It is, listen, it is life to him. That's what he's saying. It's absolute life that once again, Lord, I feel your presence with me. See, a man can endure hunger for a long time, but thirst will actually kill you relatively quickly. And he feels like he's facing death without the presence of God. Listen to how Spurgeon in his day described this. This is great. He says, The enjoyment of communion with God was an urgent need of his soul. He viewed it not merely as the sweetest of all luxuries. That's how we tend to look at it, right? It's just a sweet luxury that we have the presence of God. But as an absolute necessity like water to a stag, like the parched traveler in the wilderness whose skin bottle is empty and who finds the wells dry, he must drink or die. He must have his God or faint. His soul, his very self, his deepest life was insatiable for a sense of the divine presence. That's what's going on, especially in Psalm 42. So that's the diagnosis, if we want to talk about that. The psalmist is depressed. Let's spend the rest of our time together, and we're going to walk through some steps on how to overcome that type of condition. Because again, I'm going to promise you, if you haven't dealt with this before, it's coming someday. So let's talk about how to overcome it. I'm going to give you a series of steps on the screen. First of all, everything I'm about to share with you is contingent upon the fact that a person is born again, right? That he or she has a genuine saving relationship with the living God. And the psalmist can say that, right? You see him making statements over and over again. Yes, he is, in, he is in pain and he is in sorrow. But over and over again, he talks about his God, his strength, and his rock. And this reinforces for us what I've just said. A true believer, a true worshiper of God can suffer from depression. But the difference in being born again is that we have a God that we can turn to who is a refuge and a strength and a hope. The world doesn't have that. So all the steps we're going to walk through is contingent upon that truth. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have access to the throne of grace. And so come talk to somebody afterwards if you need to talk about that. But everything is dependent upon that. Now, it is critical, as a second point, that every person in this room start to develop a theology of suffering. If you haven't done that yet, it's time. 
why do we have to do this? For that day when it comes into your life, when you get hit by overwhelming circumstances and you are tempted to fall into despair, you need to be ready. You need to have a roadmap for how to deal with this, these waves of emotions and feelings that are going to come over you. And that strategy, that roadmap has to be biblical, not just rooted in how you feel or how the world responds. It has to be biblical. And even if we need to reach out for help, and that's probably the best course of action, we also need to learn as a frontline defense how to self-counsel in those moments when we feel those depressive symptoms coming on, right? So there's two, there's two, two layers. There's the self-counsel, and then there's reaching out to somebody in the body of Christ who can help you. But we have to develop this theology of suffering for that day. See, feelings of depression are like a flashing red warning light on the dashboard of an airplane. Like beep, beep, beep. There's a sound and there's a light because it tells the pilot there's something really, really wrong. We've got to be sensitive to that. If the pilot keeps flying that plane and just ignores that light, something really bad is going to happen. So the best thing he can do when he sees that light and he hears that beeping is what? Land the plane and get it fixed. Address the problem. Don't try to ignore it. Bad things happen when you do that. So it's important when you feel depressive symptoms coming on that you know something about your own heart, that you know about how your emotions tend to fluctuate in those moments. And and this is a big part of life for all believers, to know God and to know self, to know what's happening in the depths of your heart and how you respond to things. It's It's one of the great marks of maturity that you're growing more and more aware of your own feelings and emotions and how to process through them in a healthy biblical way. So you need to know, is this, is what I'm beginning to feel, is this just a minor problem? Is this like, like a pilot just flies through turbulence, right? It's not a big deal. He just makes a minor adjustment. Is that what's going on? These things that you're suddenly experiencing and feeling, is it a minor adjustment you need to make to sort of straighten out your thinking and get back on course? Or, or, Am I finding myself in a dangerous nosedive and I'm headed towards the ground? And if I don't do something about this, I'm going to crash. And that's what we see the psalmist doing here. He's in a nosedive, but he doesn't ignore the situation. He deals with his feelings before God openly and honestly. And I dare say he deals with his emotions aggressively. He comes boldly to the throne of grace and asks for help. In the midst of his suffering, he doesn't hold back with that bold question of why, Lord? Why? And by the way, as God's children, we can do that. It's okay. If you belong to God, if you're his child, your father who cares for you wants you to come boldly to his throne. And you can ask the question why? Because we're his children, right? Provided you come with a sincere heart. That you really want to know the answer to that question and that you're not just shaking your fist at God in rebellion, but you come to him with a sincere question. Daddy, I need to know what's happening right now. Why? Make sense? Now, you need to go beyond why, and you need to ask some key questions about the circumstances that you are uh, enduring at the time, right? So first of all, you need to ask the question, is the circumstance I find myself in because of sin on my part? That's a key question, right? Because look, things happen in life and, and you're starting to feel things and you're like, okay, I need to address this problem. What's going on here? These circumstances have come upon me. First of all, is it because of known sin in my life? We saw David do this back in Psalm 32. Do you remember? He, he said, I hid my sin from you, Lord. And so I was groaning all day long and my vitality, my strength and my energy was being drained from me because I kept sin hidden and I didn't deal with it. So if we're aware of disobedience in our time of despair, this is where you have to start. Confession of sin. Listen, you've been given as a child of God access to the throne of grace. Use it. Don't move away from God. Move towards him Open up your heart, confess that sin honestly and openly, and he promises to not only forgive, but to cleanse you and to fill you with the Spirit. But it has to start here. Make sense? That's number one. Number two, you have to ask the question, okay, should I 
Does God want me to do something to change my circumstances? Or as we looked at last Sunday, am I stuck in a pit that I have no way of escaping from? So listen, sometimes, sometimes circumstances come upon us and we begin to feel those, those feelings of depression and we need to take action because there is a righteous path where we can do something to get ourselves out of that bad circumstance. And, and I can't tell you what that is. You know, look, if you're, for, I'll give you just a quick example. I got fired from my job. I'm in economic trouble. I'm feeling depression. Well, build your resume and start doing interviews, right? Simple things like sometimes you need to just get up and take action if there's a righteous path to fix that problem. What we can't do, what we can't do is just say, I'm going to just sit in the weeds and feel really bad about my situation. I'm just going to sit in the weeds and I'm going I'm to sort of give up or I'm going to go passive because ultimately all that does is add to your despair. Now, if I can't change my circumstances in a righteous way and I'm stuck in a pit, what then? Well, we examined it last Sunday, right? Remember, David said that's the time to wait patiently on the Lord's timing. Wait patiently. Now, remember what we talked? That doesn't mean you know, play video games and watch Netflix. It means to be active. It doesn't mean be idle, but to be active in, first of all, crying out to God in prayer, asking Him for help, but second, pouring over His Word to remind yourself of His faithfulness in the past and to remind yourself of His promises for your future. So you're either going to take action or you're going to wait patiently, but even the wait patiently means be active in that waiting. That make sense? And then throughout the process, you want to ask the question, all right, Lord, what do you want me to learn through this? Do you want me to change my perspective? Do you want to change my attitude in the midst of this suffering? And again, this requires going before his throne, night and day if necessary, to say, Lord, do you want me to see things differently? Do you want to open up my eyes to a bigger perspective on this? Do you want me to... Is, is it really more about me changing my attitude towards the things that you brought into my life? What is it? But you've got to ask this question as well, right? And oftentimes when we go to the Lord in prayer to discover his purpose, we begin to understand that he is, he is shaping our hearts and he is shaping our minds so that we move towards greater maturity in our faith. And that's a good thing, is it not? We don't like the trial, but his purpose in it may be very, very good. The best thing that you need. But we need to ask that question. Here's a big part of that as well. Ask yourself, do I really trust that God is sovereign over this situation that I'm in? We talk about sovereignty. We pay lip service to it. We love the doctrine. We should. But do I really believe it? Is God in sovereign control over my circumstances? By the way, notice how the psalmist does this. Look at Psalm 42, verse 7. He describes this feeling of drowning, right? But look what he calls the water sweeping over him. He calls them your waterfalls, God, your breakers and your waves. He affirms that God is sovereignly behind this crisis that he finds himself in, that Yahweh is testing his faith, stretching his trust by allowing these circumstances to come upon him. He says, they're from you, Lord. It's, it's, I'm drowning here. I'm getting hit by these breakers, but I know that you brought this into my life for a reason. That's a hard teaching, isn't it? We love sovereignty up until that point. And then we're like, I don't like that part of sovereignty. But we have to. We have to love it. At first glance, it feels like, well, what kind of a father would do this to his children? But the answer is a father who recognizes that nothing but ease and comfort is actually not good for us. Isn't that true? Dads, if you're, if you're, a, if you're a, a dad, you know that. If you just give your children ease and comfort, it is not good for them. And so our Father in heaven will bring trials into our lives in order to grow us. And I'll be honest with you, that's what you want. You want a sovereign God, even in the hard things, because the alternative is actually way more frightening that God wants to do things in your life, that he has a purpose for things, but he's constantly being thwarted by wicked, evil human beings. That is not a God you want to serve. As one wise scholar once wrote, this is a great quote, 
He says, better a God whose mystery we can't fully understand than a God whose adequacy we can't rely upon or whose intentions we can't be sure of. That's a great quote. So all these questions are really good. Addressing your circumstances, asking yourself good questions, what's next? Well, believe it or not, the main goal of overcoming depression is not getting out from under your circumstances. It's not. That may come about in time as a byproduct of what I'm about to talk about, but that is not the main goal. The main goal is to seek God, to seek the presence of God, to commune with Him, to know Him on a deeper level. That is our aim. We seek to come to Him, to come into His presence, to abide in His presence, because we affirm this truth. Listen, He is the only refuge, the only help, and the only hope that we have in this world, in this life. Everything else is going to disappoint you. Everything else is going to be a temporary band-aid. Only God is our refuge, our help, and our hope. And the psalmist models this here. In the midst of his pain, he knows exactly where he has to go. That's why he says, my soul longs for God as the deer longs for water. He knows that's the only place he should go. The worst thing you can do in the midst of despair is what I've seen so many professing Christians do. Get angry, be confused, go down into depression and do what? Move away from God. I don't want any part of that. That's not going to help me. I see it all the time. People who isolate themselves in the midst of despair. Dangerous. People who stop praying because they're hurt. Stop studying God's word because it doesn't interest them anymore. They skip church. They say no to fellowship opportunities. You call them up, are you okay? I'm fine. We do this in the Western world. We, we hide, don't we? When we need to be open and honest before God and then to ask for help from people that want to help. And this is right where the enemy wants you, right? He's whispering in your ear, God doesn't care about you. And we buy that lie. We buy it. So you want to move towards him as your source of hope. And we have a very subtle example of this. Go over to uh, Psalm 43. Look at verse 3. The author is seeking the presence of God, but look where he starts. He first seeks the truth of God's word in verse 3. He says, Oh, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Wow, what a profound statement. Rather than letting my feelings lead me because they are not trustworthy, he says, let your light and your truth lead me. Now, lead me where? Remember, sons of Korah, they are familiar as priests with the tabernacle and the temple. So look at the movements that he describes here. Verse 3, first to your holy hill, meaning to Mount Zion, then to your dwelling places, speaking of the courts of the tabernacle or the temple, then even closer to the altar of God, which is the place of sacrificial cleansing. And then finally to who? To God, my exceeding joy, right into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of Yahweh. So you see this beautiful picture. Here's a man in despair, but he's circling closer and closer, honing in on the presence of God. He is fighting for hope here. That's what we need to do in the midst of depression. Draw closer and closer and fight for hope. We have to believe that when we're experiencing these symptoms, that God is sufficient to meet that need. In fact, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And you know this verse, but I want you to think about it in the context of our text this morning. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So as painful as your sorrow is or as sad as it is, it's not uncommon among human beings, he says. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to do what? Endure that trial. you got to believe that promise, folks. It's right there in your, in your Bibles. Believe that promise. Now, the next thing that the psalmist does is he commits to worshiping God in the midst of his depression. Three times in these two psalms, he says, for I shall again praise him. And look at that. He's looking into the future. He is so confident 
that God will help him endure this, that God will help him pull out of it, that he says, in the future, when this is all over, man, I am going to praise your name, right? I shall again praise you. He is so confident. But then he also says in verse 8 of Psalm 42, his song will be with me, present tense, in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. He's worshiping the Lord. I will sing to the God who has given me life. I will sing to the God who sustains my life. I will sing to the God who is going to carry me through this difficult season. We have to fight to worship. And here's the thing. When you're depressed, it's like just write it down in your strategy. When you're depressed, you may not feel like worshiping. In fact, you may get to that place where you're like, I am anything but thankful to God right now because of the pain that I'm in. But praising God is a commandment. Praising God, you're commanded to praise God and not to root your praise in how you feel at any given moment. And what I found is when we, we take that command and we, and, we, and we take the promise of God, when we sort of, we discipline ourselves to sort of counter our feelings and say, nope, I'm going to go and praise the Lord. Even if it's a struggle, when I sing then, that song does what? It lifts my heart. It lifts my spirit. The darkness sort of melts away as I come into the presence of God and I worship his name. Next, we see the psalmist recalling a very powerful tool in overcoming despair. He speaks of being with the people of God, the importance of that, of worshiping alongside them. Look back at verse 4 in verse 42. You hear him lamenting over how he's missing out on these festivals. Now, we don't know why he's missing out. He mentions, by the way, being up at Mount Hermon, which is way in the north of Israel, outside of the bounds of Israel, in fact. So he's, there's a distance between himself and the tabernacle, and he's missing those festivals. He's like, oh, I remember those times when I led the procession, and we celebrated Yahweh, and we sang, and we shouted with joy, and he longs to have this memory back in his life in the present tense, to be able to say, I am worshiping with my people. And so we never want to take for granted the gathering of the saints in worship. That's why in Hebrews 10, it's commanded that we gather together, that we not neglect that, because we need it. When you're despairing, you need to be with people. And most of all, you need to be with believers. And to catch that contagious nature of corporate worship, it will affect your hearts. It will lift your spirits. And if you look around this room, every person here is, is commanded in the Bible to help bear your burden. We, bear, we carry each other's burdens, right? These folks here, many here would be eager to do that. But you can't isolate. You can't walk away from God's people. More than ever, when you're depressed, you need to be with the people of God. Amen? So important. Will you always feel like going to church? No. But that's precisely when you discipline yourself and battle against how you feel. And you say, no, I'm going to the house of the Lord. I'm going to be with my brothers and sisters because that's the best place for me. So part of this is choosing obedience, isn't it? In spite of your feelings, in spite of the sadness and the grief and the sorrow and the despair, choosing obedience, choosing to work out your salvation and your faith in very practical ways. And when you do that, we talk about leading with the body. I don't always feel like doing it, but I'm going to lead with my body and I'm going to show up. God will honor that and he will bless you in your striving. That make sense? Last thing, and this is something we talk about all the time at, at Oak Hill, psalmist preaches to himself throughout these two psalms. He preaches truth to himself over and over again. Psalm 42, he reminds himself of who God is. Verse 2, he is the living God. Verse 8, he is the God of steadfast love. Verse 9, he is my rock in the midst of turmoil. He's, he's making these very clear statements. He's, he's reminding himself, preaching to himself. Then in Psalm 43, verse 1, he is the God who vindicates me, the God who delivers me. Verse 2, he is the God of my strength. Beautiful statements, right? So even though he's lamenting over his circumstances, listen, the psalmist maintains this very robust view of who God is. And that's so important in a dark time. Now, where does that view come from? Well, it comes from the study of God's word, doesn't it? 
That's where you get that. And this is an obvious truth. If you're going to preach truth to yourself, you've got to know what the truth says. You've got to know. Otherwise, what are you preaching to yourself? Your feelings, your opinions, and maybe lies. So you've got to know the truth to preach the truth. So one of our aims in the midst of depression is to capture lies and to capture unbiblical ideas and replace them with truth. It's so important, right? Because you're going to, listen, when your feelings are out of control, you're going to grab onto all these things, right? And, and, And the word says, no, 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 be careful. Test those things. And if they're unbiblical, replace them with truth. This is one of the ways we pull out of a depressive state. Preach those things to your soul. So the psalmist counsels himself three times. He says what? Hope in God. Right? Hope in God. Knock it off. Why am I letting these lies into my head? Hope in God, he says. He doesn't just go, oh, I'm so cast down and I'm helpless and so I'm just going to surrender to this because I can't do anything about it. He says, no, I'm not going to surrender my feelings. I'm going to fight for this hope and I'm going to preach it to myself. And he understands the answers to all of his problems. They're not within himself, right? That's not where he's going to find it. He's not going to hyper-focus on his emotions and all of the chaos rolling around inside of him. He looks up and he says, hope in God. And I cannot tell you guys how many times in the last 22 years of church ministry that I have had to fight back in this very same way against discouragement to say, Jeff, hope in God. This season, what you're going through, it's going to pass. God is faithful. So just lift your eyes and focus on Jesus. You've got to preach that truth to yourself over and over again. As we wrap up, I want to read to you a long quote from the great British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote a book years ago called Spiritual Depression. And uh, it's a great quote. It's very insightful and very practical. And we're just going to walk through it together because I think it summarizes so much of what I've said here this morning. Here's what he says. He says, Have you not realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. <laughs> that's, that's so obvious, but so, so insightful. Take those thoughts that come your way. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Well, yourself is talking to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself, You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. And he finishes, then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself, defy other people, defy the devil and the whole world and say, I shall praise him. You want some practical instruction? There it is. Or you could just preach scripture to yourself, right? Say, self, if God is for me, who is against me? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for me. So who can separate me from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Preach the truth to yourself. That is the truth. Do you believe it? Do you believe his promises? Tell your soul that you believe God's word to be completely true, even when you're despairing. And so by the act of my will, I will believe in his promises. And the spirit of God will testify to your spirit that yes, It's true that you are a child of God and your God will lovingly carry you through this season of life. Believe it. Is there a cure for depression? Is there a way to overcome it? Of course there is. 
But listen, it's not found in us. The cure is not found in our feelings or our emotions. It's not found in what the world wants to give you, which is medication after medication. And it's not found in secular psychology either. The cure is always found in God as our refuge and our strength. And you've got to believe that. Well, we began this morning talking about lament, so I'm going to finish with a a famous quote from a book in the Bible. It's called, guess what? Lamentations. He says, I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I will say the Lord is my portion, and therefore I will put my hope in him. Let's bow our heads. I just want to give you a minute or so to to just talk to the Lord directly, just between you and him about anything that he has brought to your heart, your mind, by his spirit this morning. If you're in a circumstance right now that you're struggling, if you've been in one, if you need to prepare for one, talk to the Lord now, and I'll close in just a moment. Father, I am grateful this morning that you are an omniscient God, and you know exactly what is happening in in each of our lives, in each of our hearts, God, as your children, you are attending to us in your unique ways, that you are building out your purposes in our lives, whether that's through trial or that's through prosperity right now, whatever season we're in right now, God, you are working in us and for us. And so, Lord, I pray for us that we will continue to process through these two Psalms and understand what it means to have a theology of suffering that we will continue, Lord, to grow in our trust in your word and a trust in your promises, that we will more than ever thirst to be in your presence, Lord, to know the hope that you give us in Jesus Christ. And God, if anybody here this morning right now is struggling with these very things, depression, anxiety, sadness, grief, sorrow, any of these things, Lord, that you would attend to them now, that you would carry them by your love and by your grace and that they might see that way of escape that you have provided to know that you are with them in those waves and that you will help carry them out. Help us to trust you more, Lord. Thank you for our time and your word this morning. Thank you for the beauty of these psalms. Seal these truths to our hearts for your glory. Amen.